that was, those were all images of a week ago Saturday when uh, those who could come came and served at Badger Rock Elementary School to help prepare the grounds. We're going to learn more about Badger Rock toward the end of the service or end of the sermon. But uh, anyway, just thank you so much for pouring out your time for those who were able to come and be part of that. Um, now, those of you who are new at the Vine may not realize that our work at Badger Rock, it flows from a vision that we've had since this church was established six years ago. And that is that uh, gospel community mission, those words in the wall, would be expressed not only in this gathering on Sundays, but in city groups throughout the week. And in those smaller families of groups, our challenge was not only to meet weekly, to encourage one another in the word and to pray for one another and live true community, but also once a month to get involved in serving in an area of need within our city. And so uh, as we've sought to do this better, we've formalized relationships like with Badger Rock Middle School as well as with international students here at the university who come from around the world and come really as, as uh, folks who are not part of this culture. We, we long to reach them and, and encourage them to help them feel at home as we love them and care for them. We also work in the Elizabeth House in a formal relationship there, which is a residency program for young moms coming out of oftentimes some difficult situations. And so we just see that as part of who it is that we are. And we've also invited those groups to then, uh, those coordinators of those areas, to invite churchwide to participate at least once a year in, in, a, in a way that we can all pitch in. And that's what that work morning represented. That's what's going to happen in November is we have an opportunity to invite internationals to join us for Thanksgiving in our home to exercise hospitality in that way. And, um, and so, you know, stay tuned for that. More is coming in that regard. But what all of these opportunities represent at the Vine is our desire, among other things, to use our resources, to use our influence for the good of the city as we seek to bring spiritual and physical renewal into the areas of need. And this ties beautifully with what God's going to be teaching us from his word today in our last uh, sermon in the series of Proverbs that we've been going through this summer. So going to invite you at this time to turn, if you have your Bible with you, if not, you can turn to your smart Bible, or you can, uh, there's a Bible in the back uh, behind the sound booth as well, you can have and keep for yourself. We're going to be in Proverbs 31, so you can turn there, and verses 1 through 9. So let's go ahead and uh, join together as you follow in the reading of God's Word. The words of King Lemuel an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Lord, as we meditate upon it, we see that it has implications for us. It has implications for our heart as we consider more deeply who it is we, because of, 
of what it is that you've done for us. It has implications for our, our obedience, our bodies, our, our, our wills as we choose to follow and really imitate the goodness that you've modeled for us in your word. And I pray today, Lord, just humbly that in spite of the words I share, Lord, that your word would be clear, that your spirit would just be present among us, helping to translate into the very unique applications that you have for each one of us based upon what you're going to teach us now from your word. And we pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so as I mentioned, we're in Proverbs. We're just finishing this series. And Proverbs really, uh, all that's, you know, one of the embodied realities of it is that it's teaching us how to live according to godly wisdom. Now, as we often have, have referenced as those various people on the teaching team are, are, are up in front and helping us to understand how to interpret God's word, is that, that one of the very helpful tools for us in that is to understand the identity of the original audience. In other words, who were these passages written to? Because once we understand that, then the true meaning of the text comes to life. We understand what problems it was intended to address and what the ultimate purpose the author had when it was written. And in this case, Proverbs 31 makes the job quite easy because we see in verse 1, these are the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Now, no one knows for sure who this king really is because there's no other record of him in the Bible. There's no other historic record of him. Some commentators think it was a North African king. Others think that perhaps it's code for this Israel king, King Solomon, to whom much of the Proverbs is attributed. Even though King Lemuel's identity is unclear, what is clear is that when his mother taught him this, he was a child. Likely at that time, it was clear he was an heir to the throne. So, so it was clear to her that this young boy would be a man of influence and leadership. And so in light of this, his mother wanted to teach him an oracle, which means a, a weighty message. So she had a message of great importance that she wanted him to understand. And this importance, it's emphasized in verse 2. Follow along. What, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? This repetition, it really emphasizes all the more the importance of the message that she wants to portray and communicate to her son. I know what some of you might be thinking when you hear those words. You might remember the time when you were a child and you were in trouble doing something wrong and your mother came up to you and said, what are you doing? And then would say like your first, middle, and last name probably, right? Even though it's your mother, uh, that, that there was a purpose behind that. Uh, now, even though that's, that might be what comes to mind for you, that's not necessarily what's happening here. You see, it's better to not see this as a stern rebuke, but as this loving, heartfelt appeal, because she marries each question with a statement of commitment and affection. It's like she's saying, Oh, my beloved son, what is it that you're living for? How, my child, do you want your life to make a difference in the world? So knowing that, that he's a child, again, who'd one day have influence... His mother wanted to instruct him in how to use this influence according to godly wisdom. So now that we've thought, hey, who, who's the original audience? How can this translate to us? And the thing I think I want us to recognize is that this room is filled with people of influence. Uh, you might be a parent. You have influence in your family or over your children. You might be a leader in the workplace or in your profession or in your home. 
And yet others of you, you're, you're young adults. You, you're at the front end of a growing amount of influence. And I, I think that's often the case here in the vine because there's a lot of what we call upward mobility here. Um, we, we take this annual survey as a church just to see how we're doing as a community. And it's, it's for mostly the adult population here in the church. And uh, this last year's survey, this is what we learned. That, that of the adults in this congregation, 50% of us are 28 and under. Okay? 75% of us are 34 and under. And this does, yes, indeed mean that I am one of the oldest guys in this church. Okay? But it also means that this church is filled with potential. That there are a lot of future leaders with a lot of future and growing influence. And so... The words in this teaching have unique relevance to us as a congregation. And so one of the questions we need to grapple with is, how is it that we are going to use our present and our future influence in a way that reflects godly wisdom? And how it reflects godly wisdom, it's going to be answered in the next six verses. We're going to see three things. We're going to see that people of influence must exercise self-control that they must comfort those in distress, and and that they must advocate for the destitute, poor, and needy. So let's look at that first one. People of influence must exercise self-control. So back to the words of King Lemuel's mother, we learn that there are two areas where self-control should be exercised. Look first at verse 3. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. So there's this distraction, okay? The mother is saying to women or people who destroy kings. Now, it's really important because if we interpret this wrongly, it could really go poorly for us. Uh, Proverbs is rich in symbolism, okay? In line with this, one of the main, you know, um, heroes of Proverbs is Lady Wisdom. Okay, there's appeals again and again to wisdom. Uh, but then there's this opponent to wisdom, and it's, it's this wayward or strange woman, So it's safe to say that this is the woman of whom King Lemuel's mother is speaking. This wayward woman. She's dangerous. She's foolish. She represents the kind of people that King Lemuel must avoid at all costs. And even though we've spent quite a bit of time in Proverbs, we haven't really studied that foolish woman directly as much. But I found this great summary uh, of how we can see this personality all throughout Proverbs. So follow along in this quote. The strange woman like strong drink, will drain your strength. She will seduce you, encouraging you to be unfaithful to your marriage vows. If you marry her, she will be unfaithful to you. She's the opposite of the virtuous wife. Instead of strengthening your house, she will demolish it. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. She will neglect your family. She will bankrupt you financially. She'll ruin your reputation. She'll distract you from your calling. You'll be so busy trying to please her, and she is hard to please, that you will have little time left for your vocation. You won't be able to trust her to run your home. Your kids will be out of control. You'll be constantly fighting domestic fires. She'll wear you out, a constant dripping on the day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Yikes, I, I, I would want to stay as far away from that woman as I could, right? We all would say that. But I think we need to be honest for a moment and recognize that perhaps we've been that person. 
Perhaps we are close friends or have been close friends with someone who is like this strange, wayward woman. People who have had a destructive influence on our lives. And this really ties beautifully with what Michael brought a few weeks ago as we looked at friendship in the Proverbs because he referenced Proverbs like this. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So if you choose close friendship with this woman or a man of folly, what you're doing is you're going to inflict harm on yourself. Now, a few months ago, I got a call. So I'm in my car, I got a call from a young man who was asking my blessing to marry my daughter, Hannah. Now, what made this call easy for me to accept and even a little exciting for me to accept is that uh, some months before, I had an interview with this young man, okay? So we were on Skype, he and I alone, and I riddled him with questions. And I took notes as we were going, into, and I found out later my daughter Hannah thought that was a bit much to take notes. But anyway, you know, my passion was this as we spoke. As her father, it was incredibly important to me that my daughter was going to date a man who wouldn't drain her strength, but who would empower her to grow and flourish as the woman God had created her to become. And so, because of that interview and because of the relationship that grew from that day forward on that day when Garrett called, I could with great confidence say, yes, you have my blessing. What a blessing to my daughter you will be. So the bottom line for us is this, that if your closest friends, if those you date, if those you consider marrying, don't lead you to grow in character and faith, then you should go the other way. It's that simple. So do not, according to King Lee Mule's mother, give yourself to people who rob you of strength, who destroy kings. And this leads to the next caution in verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Now it's important not to overcomplicate what it is that King Lemuel's mother was saying here. In one sense, her instruction is quite simply, if you party too hard, it's going to be, you're going to be a lousy leader. Okay? Now we see throughout the scriptures, and as we understand the history of the Hebrew people, that drinking alcohol was common practice in Jewish culture. But it's also quite clear in the scriptures that drunkenness was considered sinful. It's a harmful practice. Ephesians 5.18 reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. And so why does King Lemuel's mother say that this kind of drinking is to be avoided? Because it will cause this future king to disregard God's law and to neglect the rights of the afflicted. Um, I looked up some stats this week. Center of Disease Control and Prevention released some statistics back in 2015 that said those who drink excessively, meaning four or more drinks an evening, will cost society, or have cost society, over $82 billion in lost productivity, $75 billion in early mortality, and $25 million in crime. And so this, this saying, the wisdom of this saying, is not just for back then, it's for 
today as well. It's relevant to us that we should avoid, you know, not only the, the foolish woman or man, but excessive drinking because those things will distract us. They'll get in our way of the influence that God has given us to uphold the rights of the afflicted. Now, I know the near application for some of us here may be like, get some better friends, right? And it may be uh, quit uh, partying or, or excessive drinking. But as I was preparing for the sermon, God convicted me as well. There's a near application here too. I uh, had gotten into um, an Amazon Prime television series recently, and I was spending time just catching these episodes. And what I recognized the Lord convicted me of this week was it had been a couple weeks since I'd read a good book. And um, so conviction came on me, and so I've tried to change my habits and get back into the healthy habit of not overwatching. It's not that a good TV series isn't good. I mean, it's fine to do that. We all can relax to that. But when uh, it was robbing me, ultimately, of, of power and influence, wasn't it? Because I was investing myself too much in that direction and not enough in good things. So there's a, a question to answer for all of you, and that is, what is taking your strength? What's robbing you from using your influence for good? For yourself and for others. Now, so now we've seen how people of influence must exercise self-control in order to use their power for good. And let's now go a bit more deeply into why it is we should do this. So it leads us now to the next point. And I need to find the right page. Just one, one moment here. And that is that people of influence must comfort those in distress. So look at verse 6 and 7. Okay, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now that's kind of an interesting statement there, isn't it? What, it? what it sounds like is being said, that it's advocating drunkenness for people in poverty or people in, you know, dealing with their mortality at the end of their, at the end of their life. Um, but to best interpret this, it's important to remember, again, the original audience. It's an ancient society where there isn't a lot of medication available and so alcohol was not only a means of enjoyment and how to enjoy a good meal, but it was also a means of medication. And we see this in 1 Timothy 5.23, where Paul advised Timothy to drink wine to manage his stomach pain and other health problems. So biblically speaking, as we saw earlier, drunkenness is prohibited, but the medicinal use of alcohol in order to numb pain in the right context, it's actually encouraged. So to, to bring this to present day, it's almost easier to think of this on a principle level for us. At the principle level, this proverb might read something like this. Use your influence in order to alleviate the suffering of the sick and poor among you. In other words, don't waste your power and influence on yourself, as we saw in the first point, but invest that power into actively reducing poverty, into actively aiding those who are in misery. Now, it's interesting to me how close this concept mirrors the ministry of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, this is saying that spiritually and, and in every other way, Jesus was rich. He was perfect. He was in complete unity with God, but he laid down those riches in order to live on this earth as a man and to die the death of a criminal. Why? So that our spiritual poverty caused by sin could be reversed. So that by our faith in his mercy displayed on the cross, we might inherit his spiritual wealth, which is reflected by the new life given to us in Christ and the hope we have in him. So interestingly, this exchange of Christ's wealth for our poverty, it's a spiritual wealth, uh, reflection of what we're learning today in the Proverbs. So one way of looking at it is this. It's like the gospel of Jesus, this good news of Jesus, what he did, it's like throwing a large rock in a pond. And as you know, as that, as that rock hits the water, there are ripple effects. And that ripple effect, it's like our imitating him in his kindness towards us as we show kindness towards others. In response to his generosity, we too become generous. In response to his sacrifice, we too become sacrificial. In response to his mercy, we become agents of mercy. And so, is it any wonder that throughout history, wherever spiritual revival occurred, a cultural revival followed? Okay, this is why when the church was born and many came to faith in Christ, Acts 2.45 says this. It says that believers sold their possessions and distributed the proceeds to all who had need. This is why in the early church, when in the Greco-Roman culture, they would take their disabled babies and they would go leave them in the city dump to die, it was the Christians who would go and rescue them and bring them into their homes and raise them as their own children. This is why, after the Second Great Awakening, where spiritual revival swept through North America, that Methodist and Presbyterian and other hospitals like it were founded as centers for physical healing in the culture. So we've learned that as people of influence, we're to exercise our self-control. Why? In order to preserve our influence, that we might spend it as an advocate alleviating the suffering of others, just like Jesus did for us. And, and, and this principle, it leads us to this next point as well, that people of influence must advocate for the destitute, poor, and needy. Look at verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. So what does it mean for the, a, a future king to open his mouth for the mute? Well, for a king to open his mouth for another is to plead the cause of another, right? To advocate on their behalf. And the idea that he does this for the mute means that he's speaking on behalf of the one who can't speak for themselves. To literally be a defender of the defenseless, a voice of the voiceless, an advocate for those unable to affect change for themselves. We see a similar picture in verse 9. Follow along. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So we see that this future king was taught to use his influence to plead the cause of the poor and needy by both judging the oppressor and defending the right of the oppressed. This suggests really a legal process almost, and intervening, using his authority to make judgments that will lift the suffering and injustice experienced by those in need. And it's interesting as well 
to see how this mirrors the ministry of Jesus too. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 reads this, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, propitiation is one of those tough words, um, but it just means to appease, to atone. So the picture here in this text is that Jesus laid down his life in order to appease the judgment we deserve for sin. And in doing so, what was he doing? He was becoming our advocate. So imagine with me now a courtroom. Okay, we're in a courtroom. God is judge, and you're the defendant. Okay, and you're on the stand knowing full well that you are guilty of your sinfulness and selfish disobedience. And in this courtroom, the defense counsel is none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus stands up. And even though he's fully aware of your guilt, he pleads before the Father on your behalf. And the argument he makes is not based on the fact that you're not guilty. It's not because you didn't commit the crime, but because he's already paid the punishment that you deserve for your sin. And so he is an advocate. He is pleading on your behalf before the Father. And so in line with Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, Jesus, he, he gave his life in payment for us. And in doing so, he became an advocate for us. And do you see the parallel here? It's, you see, to be a Christian literally means to be a, a little Christ, an imitator of Christ. And so is it any wonder that as we advocate and defend the rights of the poor and needy, that we're doing nothing less than imitating what it is that Jesus did for us as our advocate, as the one who with his wealth paid the price for our spiritual poverty. And, and as we grasp this, things begin to happen. I, I'm in awe, really, of this journey we've been on as a church. Over a year ago, a team formed here in the church to begin exploring some of the deep needs of the city and how it is that we as a church can better intervene on behalf of the poor and those in need and some of the disparities that we observe in Dane County. And, and this is why in recent months, Morgan Ritter began carrying that work forward by developing an advocacy program at the Vine to not only just meet direct needs of the poor, but to advocate for spiritual, emotional, and physical healing. This is also why in recent weeks, Naomi Ledgerwood, she accepted the position as the Safe Family Coordinator for the uh, Madison area, which Safe Families is an organization kind of between you know, the home and the foster system that, that engages with families that are trying to escape domestic violence or come out of poverty and get a fresh start on life. And so it gives the opportunity for us to come in and help support those families. And this is why Morgan and Naomi recently joined with Laurel Eccles, who's providing leadership in our care and discipleship area as we seek to help people find spiritual and emotional healing through God's Word and the Gospel. And they're all on this advocacy team trying to bring together these elements to, to make a difference. What I want us to see is that this is nothing less than a reflection of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an echo of His advocacy for us. It's a reflection of the resources He poured out so that we two who are poor and needy could enjoy the inheritance of a king. So in the, in the spirit of Proverbs 31, 
1 through 9, how is it that, that God's challenging you to use your influence to become an advocate? Um, for some of us, the answer to that question might be a faith answer, might be trusting in the one who paid such a great cost, paid such a high price in order to purchase your freedom. Perhaps it's just a faith decision you need to make to trust in that. For others of you, though, this question might be inspiring you to get involved in some unique way. And, and I also ask the question, just with unbelievable joy and awe, seeing how God is already doing such amazing things in this congregation as we seek to reflect the love of Christ. And so to conclude, what I'm going to do is invite uh, Hong Tran to come on up. And Hong is the new principal at Badger Rock Middle School. And he uh, was, uh, before that, an assistant principal at Cherokee Middle School, right? Hong, welcome. <laughs> um, it's been a joy working with Hong through our, uh, our work at Badger Rock. And uh, just love his spirit, love his enthusiasm, love what I believe uh, is he's going to be used to do to help Badger Rock really do some amazing um, things in the lives of kids. And so what I'd love for you to share first is, well, you can introduce yourself, but then also share a little bit about what are some of the needs that you feel as though Badger Rock has been called to address in our city. Hey, Scott, how are you? Great. Great. Uh, I'm Hong Tran, assistant principal at Cherokee for the last two years. This year is my first year as head principal at Badger Rock Middle School. Um, first off, thank you. You saw the slideshow. That was the, uh, the building cleanup day last Saturday. Great weather. is overcast. We were able to get a lot done. Grape Arbor, hoop houses cleared of weeds. Uh, it, it was amazing. So our students came back on Thursday and Friday, and they were pretty impressed. So thank you um, for, for your time. So um, what the community needs. Uh, one, I, I think we need uh, racial healing and understanding. You know, there's been a lot going on in our country that's reflected in Madison, too. Um, so we need this, um, this common understanding that we are all human, regardless of how light or dark our skin is. Um, we also need um, strong schools, you know, schools that uh, teaches students young people how to think critically, how to communicate, and how to collaborate. Uh, we don't need schools that um, replicate 50 to 100 year old strategies. You know, when we're trying to produce kids who, uh, who can, can change the world, but also have the agency to change themselves too. Well, and, and Badger Rock, I, not everybody really knows, but it has really a unique strategy that is very uh, powerful. I think as, as I sat in a meeting at the Madison School District with you and others, we heard that the, the school district is looking to Badger Rock as a model for, for change. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the strategy and how sure. that works? Sure. Um, first off, we're, we're a small public charter school, around 80 students. We have room for 20 more in case you have anyone, middle schoolers, who <laughs> after my speech well, we might want to come to Badger Rock. Um, we're off. Uh, Rimrock Road and Badger Road here, second floor of the Badger Rock Community Center. So we have a couple of unique offerings. One, we're a project-based learning school. Uh, doesn't mean that we do projects all the time. It's a way of thinking. So we teach students how to ask questions and how to find answers to those questions and ask follow-up questions and find answers to those. So we, we teach them how to critically think. Um, this year, our big question for the school is systems. How do systems work together? 
what happens when they fail and how do you fix systems. Uh, to help them understand that, we also go out in the community. So we believe that the classroom is beyond the four walls of the Badger Rock Middle School upstairs there. Um, so every, most Thursdays, students are in the community doing research, understanding um, kind of the big questions around systems. So that's, the, that's one of our unique offerings, the way we teach students. We also have, uh, we're, we want to become a model urban agriculture school. We have lots of land around our school. Um, so the idea is that urban ag, um, I, I'm thinking of a farm, right? So all the things that go into a working farm, that it drives the project, it, it drives what students are learning about. Um, the, the third piece is that we want not just to teach the academics, but also teach students how to be stewards, um, caretakers of their community. Mm, that's great. Well, how, uh, just to wrap it up, how, how, how is it that we can continue to participate in, in being a part of what it is you're doing. Keep on helping us clean our grounds, that'd be great. Because <laughs> <laughs> weeds grow every day, all day, so uh, we need someone to tend the grounds. But um, I think, regardless of the, I would say the smaller projects, um, just in terms of thinking about who you are and we are, I challenge my staff this. Um, and it's a challenge from a quote from Lila Watson, the Aboriginal activist in Australia, right? She said, uh, if you come here to help me, you wasted your time. But if your liberation is tied up with mine, then we, then we got something to do, we got something to work with. So my challenge to my staff is to view themselves as not, not, not a helper only, not someone who meets the needs only, but also one that is part of the community and the destiny, our destinies are tied up together in our collective work. So. If we can remember that, I think everything else can kind of trickle down and work itself out. That's great. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and join in praying for Hong and the important responsibility he has. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for bringing Hong to Badger Rock and, and Lord, giving him a position of authority and influence. And Lord, that he's giving that influence, um, that he desires to see his energies used to really contribute to the greater narrative of a place that is helping people's lives get better. And that's a valuable thing, immensely valuable, and such an important responsibility. You encourage us to pray for our leaders. I pray he would know we're a people who are praying for him. Lord, and praying that he might flourish, become all that uh, you want him to be, that you might bless the fruit of his hands by, by helping the school to be truly a, a, a transformative environment. Lord, and that he will just sense the affirmation of uh, people who are around him, who are asking even on behalf of, of God to just bless him and to bless that work and, and to really make a difference. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to partner with them in that and just pray for the advance of that, the strength of that, the sacrifice that he and his family made that it, they would have made in this, that, Lord, it would just truly be blessed by you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Hong. Yep. yep. Let's give him a hand. He's given his... He's given his morning to be with us, so um, thank you very much. Turn it over to you, James.